When Tillamook ice cream beckons you to the freezer aisle, which irresistibly creamy flavor do you choose? While you're thinking, try not to fuck up the glass. Tillamook ice cream. Extraordinary dairy. Long days and no drumstick make for short fuses. And this fateful Monday, my fuse was as stubby and hungry as they come. Where are the drumstick vanilla cones? Take it easy, Sonny. Where are the drumstick vanilla cones, please? Yes! Sweet, creamy, crunchy, crispy, decadent deliciousness. <clears throat> Sir, I can ring you up. In my preoccupation with scoring a drumstick, I had forgotten my wallet. Uh, do you offer buy now, pay later? Another day, another drumstick. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It made me real bitter against the world, I guess. It seemed as if ever since that happened, it, it gave me a sad reality of how cruel the world really is. It was a rude awakening. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick, and I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And you know what? I love daylight savings time because we're recording during the day for like the first time in very long, and it feels so nice. It is nice. I feel I feel uh, quick and fresh. <laughs> very fresh. Billy has his camera set up so weird that all we see is the window in back of him, but I guess... That's right. I'm trying to keep keep myself backlit because it's it's during the day and I normally don't go outside during the day. Yeah, I also think we're in this weird window where Billy's so low energy because it's like the daytime. <laughs> he said like three things. <laughs> Billy, Anyways. he's in his hibernation time before pick he... It up, pick it up a few notches, Billy. Yeah. yeah, Billy, get a little pep in your step. What day is it? All right, you want to talk about the day? We're going to talk about the day. Today is Wednesday, April 7th. And you know what that means? April 7th is National Beer Day. That's what's up. Yes. A day I can get behind. If you could drink one beer for the rest of your life, what beer would you pick? Spicy Mango Cart. Ooh. Wow. I totally, I forgot about Mango Carts for a second. They're, it, the spicy ones are gone. They're really, I don't, I don't know if they stopped making them or if it was just a brief time but I can only find regular mango carts now. Really? That might have been a mm-hmm. limited time thing. Damn, Golden Road, bring back your spicy mango cart. You could drink those beers all day long. and they have We little, need them for summer. They level each other out because there's a little bit of sweet, a little bit of spice. It's so good. So um, good. I would also agree. And then, you know, just uh, I could do I could do a Stella if, if not. Mm. Billy, what about you? Uh, Zima. Zima all day, every day. Zima? Yeah. Isn't Zima those like fruity wine the coolers? Clear the clear beer. Yeah. No, it's a it's a beer. It was considered clear beer at the time. Mm. No. Uh it's like I, a you keystone. Know what? I don't, uh no, <laughs> exactly like Keystone. But I think um I don't know what beer would I pick. I don't know. You know what? We drank a lot of Yingling in Pennsylvania, and I do like a like a Yingling. Love a Yingling. Yeah. 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 Just a nice okay. nice lager. It's also public television day. 
Can you have just left it with beer day? No. <laughs> like a PBS? Yes, like PBS. Yeah. Mm. I'm sorry if I'm trying to bring a little bit of wholesomeness to the uh, to the group. Mm. How are you trying to bring wholesomeness to the group? Okay. What is you, who, who's, telev- your, who's your favorite public television character or personality, Alexis? I think it's time to start the show. <laughs> <laughs> come, on, come on, Alexis. I don't know, Billy. I don't watch public television. <laughs> okay. You didn't watch Sesame Street growing up? Was that on PBS? Yes. Mm. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Mm. Okay, then Cookie Monster. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you guys could have seen Alexis's face when she just said that. The disdain. Wow. Okay. Well, you know, the vibes are really good here. So we're going to jump into the show. So that's enough of that. <laughs> what, Billy? Mine's Grover, by the way. All day. Okay. <laughs> so let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. The setting for today's case is Maple Heights, Ohio, which is a suburban neighborhood on the outskirts of Cleveland, and it was named for the copious maple trees that pepper the region. And today's case takes us back to February of 1979. Do You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart and Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive were topping the Billboard charts, and Elvis, Abba the Movie, and the Warriors were in theaters. And today's story starts in the morning of a very cold February day. Here's Laura, our first degree, who was born and raised in Maple Heights. It was February 21st, so it was winter. And back in the early 70s, we had pretty bad snowstorms all the time. Laura's nuclear family consisted of her mother, father, and two siblings. From what I remember um, from the time it happened was that uh, my dad was working out of town. Morning turned to evening. My mom made dinner. We were sitting down. The phone rang. Laura's mother picked up the phone, and Laura instantly noticed a shift in her body language and demeanor. And I visually saw my mom just not being upset, but like freaking kind of. Like, I didn't know what was going on, but but she was definitely uh, pacing and anxiety. Laura was 13 years old in 1979, and she couldn't have known that her mother had actually picked up the phone and received one of those horrifying calls everyone is always afraid of receiving. We'd asked her what was wrong. She just wouldn't tell us anything. Time passed, and Laura's mother continued to say nothing. So I I remember her waiting for my dad to come home. Um, as soon as she saw the headlights in the driveway, she beelined out the door, left us there. So this is confusing. Laura's mother had received a phone call and darted outside when her father came home. Laura and her siblings expected their mother and father to obviously come back inside, but instead their parents sped away in her father's car. And hours passed. Laura didn't know what to think, but she could recall one thing that her mom said when she was on that ominous phone call. There was mention of her grandmother, who lived nearby. Laura and the members of her family were extremely close with her 63-year-old grandmother, who was named Elizabeth Jarosak. My grandma was a pretty strong Hungarian lady. 
so she was very outspoken. She definitely told it like it was. No bullshitting about anything. She definitely put you in your place, but she was my grandma. So to us kids, she was always loving. She always gave us what we wanted. We always had a lot of fun at her house, played a lot of games, played numerous Yahtzee and rummy games all the time. Coloring, I just remember those types of things. We had a really close family uh, growing up. It was a lot of Sunday dinners that we were always over. So it was our family, my cousins and my aunt and uncle, and then my grandparents. And it was an every Sunday occasion. So we saw them every weekend. Okay, back to this February 21st evening where Laura is observing this odd sequence of events unfolding in front of her. After hearing her mother mention her grandmother, Elizabeth, on this jarring call, one of the only things that was going through her head was that maybe like something had happened to her grandmother. Maybe she had fallen or gotten ill or gotten hurt or something. I thought maybe some, she was in the hospital and they were at my grandma's. So I'm calling, naturally, I'm calling my grandma's to speak to my mom and dad. But the police answered the phone. It's never good when the police answer the phone. Then, you know, still at like 13, I'm trying to grasp what, what, what the deal is, what, what the hell is going on. And uh, he just said to hang tight that my parents would be home soon. Okay, well, to a 13-year-old, these words by a police officer were probably pretty comforting. To Laura, things sounded okay. And like the officer said, her parents would be home soon. Laura and her siblings had no choice but to just hang tight. I remember talking amongst my brothers, wondering, but not knowing anything. And not knowing anything until they came back. Then, around 11 p.m., Laura heard their parents' car approaching outside. But oddly enough, when Laura looked outside, she realized that her parents hadn't returned alone. Right. Laura's parents approached the home with three of Laura's first cousins. 12-year-old Shari... 10-year-old Teresa, and 7-year-old Tom. And Laura walked up to her cousin, Teresa. I am outside with her, and I say to her, what are you guys doing here? And she's like, I have no idea. And I'm like, what? And there were two more members of extended family who had also tagged along. They have their dog and my grandma's dog. Cousins and family dogs. So what exactly was this occasion? Once initial greetings were made, Laura's parents brought all of the kids inside, and the mood was strained. It was tense. That's when my dad and mom sat down and told all six of us what happened. I know where everyone was standing in the kitchen, and it's like, it's like I can remember it as clear as day. And I think he was more so talking to the, my three cousins you know, because of the way he said it. Laura's father turned to his two nieces and nephew. Your father shot your mother. Laura's Aunt Kathy had been killed by her Uncle Tom, Kathy's husband. I just remember everyone, like, it was like, like, breakdown, crying. My cousin, who's the oldest at the time, she threw a few expletives and, you know, that motherfucking son of a bitch. You know, and then I just remember us crying and my mom and dad hugging us. 
And then after that, relatives upon relatives coming to our house all night long. A moment like this, such horrific news like this, shatters the lives of so many in an instant. So the question here, what the fuck happened? Well, we're going to rewind and tell you. So Catherine Kathy Jerosak met Thomas Callahan when she was in high school at only 16 years old. Tom was older. He was 19 when the couple began dating. And by the time that Kathy had turned 17, she was pregnant. Following the news of the impending baby, Kathy and Tom ran off to Michigan to get married. They picked the state of Michigan because a signature wouldn't be required for the couple to legally wed there. So that's what they did. And they had this whirlwind wedding. And it's worth mentioning that Kathy's family was not happy about any of this. Yeah, it's probably no surprise that this shotgun wedding, which excluded both sets of parents, was not the best foot to start this marriage out on. Kathy's parents didn't take to Tom. And this was especially the case with Laura's grandmother, Elizabeth, who, remember, is Kathy's mother. She did not like him at all. She didn't even want them to get married when they got married because they ran off and got married. So even though Elizabeth hated her new son-in-law, life didn't stop for Kathy and Tom Callahan. They continued to build a life together. They had three children in total. And Tom was earning a living as a real estate agent. By the time Kathy was 31, she was also working in addition to caring for their three kids. She got a job uh, later on at JCPenney, a department store where she worked, you know, just in the uh, like customer service department. She was pretty quiet. I always thought she was really pretty, real dark black hair with blue eyes. And I kind of always admired her just because how, how she was with the kids and stuff and just how she was when I stayed over there. She was very just sweet, nice. And here's what Laura remembers about her Uncle Tom, which is a stark contrast to her description of her aunt. At this point in my life, I think he's a fucking asshole. But at that point in my life, What I consider to be that now would be a show-off. I always thought he thought he was, like, cool. You know, in my mind, I'd be like, who does he think he is? He thinks he's just cool. And he's not. You know, like, kind of, that's the impression I had of him. Very stern, never really cordial or smiley or anything like that. Just kind of, just a loud mouth and... Stern is how I remember. Years after Kathy was murdered, Laura heard several stories from her parents. So the wedding of Laura's parents was almost destroyed after Tom flew into a jealous rage when he learned that Kathy was partnered to walk down the aisle with a different man relative in the wedding party. Tom accused this man of calming on to his wife. Words were exchanged. Laura's dad, the groom, had to step in and intervene. And everyone was crying and there was all of this drama at the wedding. And this kind of controlling, possessive behavior is often brushed off, but it can really be indicative of abuse and a deep-seated dysfunction within a relationship. So Laura's parents had several encounters with Tom over the years where he would demonstrate this narcissistic, dominant personality, and everyone seemed to tolerate him for the sake of just trying to keep the peace, but no one liked him. My cousin has told me that there were several nights She could hear him slapping her or hitting her, like, in the next room, because her room was right next to theirs. 
and her coming in, laying in bed with her and crying, and then him coming in and saying, you don't need to lay with her and, like, taking her out. By 1979, Kathy and Tom's marital problems continued to get worse. The arguments continued. And when Kathy began that job at JCPenney is when things got even worse. So once she got that job, the abuse apparently escalated and turned physical. Laura learned that at one point, after Kathy had been hired at JCPenney, management wanted her to model in one of the fashion shows they were having at the store. So Kathy wanted to do it. But when Tom found out, he ended up beating her so she wouldn't be able to be in the show. As we discuss the circumstances between Kathy and Tom, the domestic violence component we're dealing with here is a given. But women can hardly get people in charge to give a shit about domestic violence now in 2021. So imagine the position you'd be in in 1979. There were so few resources or people to turn to if you were being beaten by your partner every night. So during the 70s, domestic violence, for the most part, was largely unrecognized in the legal and medical communities. And it wasn't really socially acknowledged either. Women's shelters just weren't really a thing. And here's an example which demonstrates how much the people in charge gave a damn about women needing resources to escape domestic violence. So looking at 1973 LA, for example, homeless shelters provided 1,000 beds for men. You know how many beds they had for women? 30. By 1979, the Equal Rights Movement had made progress in having the powers that be acknowledge the existence just the existence of domestic violence in American homes, but there were still scant resources. And shifting back to our story, it was February of 1979 when it seemed as though Kathy was mustering the strength to leave Tom once and for all. And we asked Laura what prompted Kathy to finally take the leap and divorce Tom. I think just the unhappy and domestic violence, which at that time wasn't even addressed at all. I've heard from my mom and dad that she would wear long sleeves to work a lot because she had a lot of bruises on her arms and such. The week before it happened, my aunt asked him for a divorce. And she told her best friend at JCPenney the next day that he told her if, no, if I can't have you, nobody's going to have you. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways, and with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences, and before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. 
Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Thirty-four-year-old Tom Callahan had become increasingly violent and abusive towards his 31-year-old wife, Kathy. And by February of 1979, things between the couple had really reached a fever pitch. After years of escalating abuse, Kathy had asked Tom for a divorce. And on February 21st, Tom decided to go to a bar with a friend and drown his sorrows. From what I understand, they were at a bar or something like out to lunch and or something like that and he made the comment something like uh i got a gun i'm gonna do kathy and the friend was like are you out of your mind no tom wasn't out of his mind he knew exactly what he was saying and he wasn't kidding tom and his friend go separate ways after leaving the bar he leaves there he drives to his house my aunt is home with the three kids. My cousins at the time were 12, 10, and 7. This is what I got from my cousin, the oldest one. Laura is referring to her cousin Sherry, who was 12 at the time. She said that he comes in and he tells them to go outside. He wants to talk to their mother. And Sherry, my cousin, was like, where do you want us to go? And he was like, I don't know, go across the street or next door. You know, and she said, neither of them are home. And he was like, well, just go outside. I guess they did as we're told and went outside. They were standing out in the driveway is where they were. In the middle of February, when it's like 17 degrees or whatever, and probably less than that, 
she searched that not too long after she heard like three pops. Kathy and Tom's kids stood outside stunned after hearing three loud pops coming from inside their home. Then a car pulled up. The driver was one of Tom's friends. Next thing they know, his friend, a buddy of his, is coming and picking them up and taking them to his house until my parents got there to get them. And after the children had been picked up and Tom was left alone inside the house with the wife he had just killed, he picked up the phone. He called the police on himself. I guess the police came and as they had him up against the staircase, you know, like cuffing him or whatever, asking where the gun is. At that point in time, he said, I also shot my mother-in-law. So it turns out that prior to killing his wife, Kathy, Tom, for unknown reasons, had driven over to the home of his mother-in-law, Elizabeth Jarosak, and he killed her first. And remember when Laura had called her grandmother's house before her parents had returned with her cousins in tow? Yeah, well, this explains why the police were at her grandma's house and they answered the phone there. I don't know where he got a gun. I've apparently, after they found, after they searched the house, he had a lot of weapons and so forth. From what I understand, he went to my grandma's house first. They lived only a couple blocks away. Um... We think that my grandma was making dinner. My She lived alone. My grandpa already had passed several years before. They didn't really lock doors back then either. That's another thing. And being that it was him, he probably just walked in. Okay, but what motive could Tom possibly have to kill his mother-in-law? We think that he thought she was butting in on their business, you know, like giving her advice or telling her she needs to divorce him or anything along those lines. We speculate that, you know, he probably just shot her. Um, And then once she was down on the ground, the police say that he shot her in the head, I guess, to make sure she was dead. Okay, so as far as why he would do this, you know what I mean? any ideas? Is it just this like rebellion against what he considers like an overbearing presence? Is he blaming the mother-in-law for this gumption that Kathy suddenly has to leave? Like what? It's such an odd move in this case. I mean, I don't know. It depends on maybe if he was feeling out of control with her leaving him. So that's something that he felt he could take control of himself. Um, I guess, I don't know exactly how involved the mom was within their life. So maybe he felt like she was controlling. There's probably so many different aspects of, I don't know why in his mind, why he could justify what he was doing, but it's, it's very bizarre. Yeah, well, I mean the common sort of trope about the mother-in-law, the mother-in-law being uh, domineering. Um, it seems like that has mostly sort of gone away, but that was a big, big deal. Um, mm-hmm. Back then. And I know that my dad did not get along with my grandmother. Absolutely. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, it's no doubt that the loss of their grandmother, Elizabeth, was yet another horrific and emotionally heart wrenching blow. It's one thing to lose an aunt, right? And they have children. So these children have lost their mom, and then they've learned that they've also lost their grandmother. Because two matriarchs now in the same family are just gone, just like that, at the hands of this petulant, possessive man 
who felt the wife he abused slipping away and gaining independence slowly and having the strength to leave. And Laura's father at this time lost his sister and his mother just like that. So we asked her how he coped through all of this. I didn't see him cry once. He was very, very stoic. Uh, My mom has told me that he did break down in the police station. Like when they were told what happened, I don't know that my father really ever had a mourning period, to be honest. Even to this day, when I talk to him about it, he'll say to me, like, you got to quit, like, rehashing and rehashing that. You've got to think of the good memories and just, you know, put that, you know, try to put that behind you. And I'm thinking, (laughs) I don't know how you do it, but difficult. It's been difficult for all these 40-some years. By this point in the story, the 34-year-old admitted to double murder. Tom Callahan, he'd been taken into custody after calling the police on himself following the shooting of his wife, Kathy, and his mother-in-law, Elizabeth. And he was charged with two counts of murder as the painful ripple effect of the lives he had taken continued to spread. The friends, family, and especially the children of Kathy and Elizabeth were struggling to make sense of what happened. Because this is the thing. One day, everything is fine, and the next, you're planning a double funeral. Even back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, this is always how it's been with domestic violence murders. And of course, Laura and her entire family attended the memorial services where she said goodbye to her aunt, Kathy, and Grandma Elizabeth. They had open caskets, and that's clear as day as well. I, it's like, I don't... I- I don't know why parents force kids to go to, like, wakes and such, you know, when you're at that age, because I really think it's traumatizing, especially, you know, if you don't really understand death or anything. Laura remembers saying goodbye to her grandmother. My grandma looked really peaceful. Laura recalls seeing how her Aunt Kathy looked, too. I still clearly looked petrified, scared, like, The look on her face was like, that's how it stayed. Like, they couldn't even change it. Meanwhile, while Tom Callahan was in custody, police had been pressing him to explain his monstrous actions. And what do you know? He had an excuse. Shocker. Okay, a little backstory. Supposedly he was in a car accident and hit his head, and the doctor put him on some kind of pain pills or some kind of medication. He claims that from the medication, he blacked out for those hours that he, that this all took place. And then when he came to, he realized what he did. Tom's story sounds like bullshit, and that's because it is. Let's face it. He's an abusive, controlling narcissist who could not stand to lose control over his wife, who he considered to be property. Slowly, Kathy was gaining her independence, which explains why the violence really ramped up when she got a job at JCPenney and asserted some control over her own life. And now, he's been caught. He's in jail, and like the coward that he is, he has to pretend he was blacked out when he killed these two people. And later, Laura learned of several possible reasons that could have prompted a psychopath like Tom to kill his wife and mother-in-law. So according to stories that Laura had heard, Tom suspected Kathy of having an affair. And spoiler alert, she wasn't. However, she did have a strictly platonic male friend that she used to talk to. And Tom did not 
like that. Well, this male friend of Kathy's actually owned a clothing store. And a few months before the murders, the store's windows had been shot out with a gun. The police never found out who did it, but we can obviously all assume that it was Tom. And Tom became so paranoid that he actually had the phones tapped so he could listen to his wife's day-to-day conversations. In the months that followed, Laura's family struggled to adjust to their new realities. Laura's three cousins had lost their mother in such a brutal way, and now their father was slated to stand trial for killing her and their grandmother. And he was expected to go to jail for a long time to pay for his crimes. So Laura's mother and father adopted all three of the children and raised them as their own, starting the very day of the murders. The six of us, even to this day, are like extremely close. I can't even refer to them as cousins because from the time they came to live with us, my parents offered them to call them by aunt and uncle or mom and dad, and they opted to call them mom and dad. And they, to this day, they still call my parents mom and dad, and we call them our brothers and sisters. Tom was facing two murder charges to which he pleaded not guilty, but it would take nearly two years for him to see the inside of a courtroom to stand trial. Apparently he had friends in the judicial system. So it took him like two years before he actually went to trial, which was like in, I think, 81. I do know that my mom and dad were there every day. I do know that My older um, cousin had to testify and my brother only to like establish times. I asked my parents if any domestic violence was brought up, but they said no, because at that time, domestic violence wasn't really a big thing. Believe it or not, according to Laura, there was no testimony about the domestic violence in this trial. Tom's legal team attempted an insanity plea, which ultimately failed miserably and convinced no one on this jury. So he was convicted of first-degree murder for my grandma, and he was sentenced to life in prison. He was sentenced for my aunt, 25 years, involuntary manslaughter because, and I'll never get this, because he didn't mean to kill her, he only meant to hurt her. To repeat what Laura just stated, Tom was convicted of involuntary manslaughter for executing his wife, Kathy. That's total, total bullshit. I don't get how they how they come about with sentence. I don't I don't understand sentencing. So, yeah, he that that was his sentence. So at the time, of course, you know, I thought life was life. Having this kind of domestic violence related trauma materialize in the mind of a 13 year old, no doubt has its implications. The thing is, is not only does it impact that immediate family, you know, but but the entire surrounding family. I mean, it affects so many people. It definitely changed my entire perspective of the world, life in general. Like, I never, ever thought of anything the same again after that. It made me real bitter against the world. I don't know why did uh, why I stressed the whole world when it was only really one person, but it seemed as if ever since that happened, it it gave me a sad reality of how cruel the world really is. It was a rude awakening. And it's these reasons that compelled Laura to reach out and share her story with us. I think hearing other people's stories just, you know, puts 
puts it in perspective for people, you know, about bringing awareness to things, domestic violence, like this can happen to you, you know, kind of thing. I'm at a point in my life where where some changing needs done and it's almost like I've been bitter against the world for far too long. And I think that this was a kind of an opening for me to make a change, you know, by talking to you and then progressing from there as far as, you know, getting getting over the hurt so much and moving, trying to move forward, which I really haven't done. I've been stuck in, back in 1979 for 40 years. And for those of you out there listening who perhaps have a story but have been hesitant, fearful, or reluctant to share it, Time and time again, we hear from guests about how cathartic it can be to speak your truth about an experience. And Laura is using this experience with the first degree as a demarcation line to move forward from, which we are very moved by and much appreciate and encourage. But wait, this isn't over. Remember when Laura said that when she heard that Tom was sentenced to life for killing her grandmother, plus 25 years for killing her aunt? Well, she was under the impression that a life sentence would be, you know, a life sentence. But that wasn't exactly the case. So Tom has had the opportunity to be granted parole more than once already. And each time so far, he's been denied. But that could change. Come April 20th, he's up for parole release. He was denied. Do you think he's been up two or three times prior? And every time he's been up, our family writes letters. Domestic violence is so prevalent that culturally it's been accepted as this unchangeable reality, which is insane that we're so desensitized to it all the time. So let's share some stats with you, according to Kofi Annan, Secretary General of the UN. Declared in a report posted on the United Nations Development Fund for Women on the website, said that violence against women and girls is a problem of pandemic proportions. At least one out of every three women around the world has been beaten, coerced into sex, or otherwise abused in her lifetime, with the abuser usually someone known to her. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence from October 2018, between 260,000 and 3 million incidents of domestic violence are reported each year, while many, many, many other incidents go unreported. It's estimated that more than 10 million people experience domestic violence in the U.S. every year. So whether or not Tom will ever be released is yet to be known. He shouldn't be, but that's beyond our control. The fact is that this domestic abuser received an involuntary manslaughter conviction and punishment for what is clearly a first-degree murder of his wife. It's very sickening and hard to understand. But it becomes easier to understand when you look at the unwavering prevalence of domestic violence murders in our society. It's a kind of murder that the public has been so used to hearing about because they happen so goddamn often and unabated. So Time Magazine called domestic violence the pandemic within the pandemic. And police departments all over the country have reported an increase in crimes of domestic violence. 18% increase in San Antonio, a 22% increase in Portland, and a 10% increase in New York. And as the pandemic has dragged on, so too has this abuse. So now is as good a time as ever to take a look at domestic violence slayings. We need to acknowledge them, understand them, and figure out how to once and for fucking all stop them.
right. Well, a huge thank you to Laura for being our first degree for this episode. If you're listening out there and you think you have a story to tell, please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. No story is too small to tell. You can follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group by searching the first degree in the search bar. We are talking true crime all the time and stick around because we're going to kill some time. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not that. Not that close. (laughs) Happy beer day. Mm, Go get a beer. Shout out to Jared Monaco for creating original music for The First Degree. Our producing team, Caitlin Cleveland, Taylor Rogers, and Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for this episode include court documents, Ancestry.com, and our First Degree guest is always our largest source. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. I was shocked, you know? They were always such a good team, so successful. But to do something like that? To exceed their budget? While being over budget might not be a crime, it can disrupt workflows. With Monday.com, you and the team can be sure that you're all in sync. All the data, latest updates, files, and budgets are visible to everyone, so you won't miss a thing. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. All right. Well, welcome to yet another episode of Killing Time. And we kind of teased this a little bit in the actual episode, but Alexis made a little bit of a discovery while she was doing her interview for this week's episode. And I think it's really interesting because it made us all think about the concept of being a first degree and being one degree away from something. And for our podcast, we're obviously asking for these stories that are one degree away from a murder or another crime or something like that. But we don't realize that there can also be another first degree connection in addition to what we're actually looking for. So I'll kind of let Alexis explain that. Right. And I think it's super interesting because Laura, who we had on today's episode, was a main super fan. And it's actually how she found out about the first degree. And at the end of the episode, which was a really emotional episode, if you guys heard the entire episode, which we just played for you, you, you know hope that. that they did. <laughs> yeah, we hope so. As opposed Actually, to those people also, that fast forward cool. straight to killing time. That's yeah. also cool. That's also cool. But you know, um, it was a it was an emotional interview. And at the end, she's like, "Hey, I have a little side note story for you." So we're gonna play a little excerpt from that little story right now. A little story or whatever. It's kind of like a first degree. So. I don't know if Jack will remember me, but I have met her before. And oh, how really? All, yes, and how this all came about um, was, um, so it was on one of the Warp tours, 
And uh, it was when she first came out with her bracelets, because I actually still have three of them. I wore them all the time, back, but that was like 10 or so years ago, and I'm like 55 now, and I'm like, eh, I don't know if I can wear these. But um, <laughs> I still kept them, you know, as I, as I, I don't know, they're like sentimental to me. So when I met her, um, I, a friend of mine, um, used to do merch for um, a ba- one of the bands. So I was hanging with him one day, and I was on the band's bus, and we had this little conversation. You know, I mean, she was so sweet, and, you know, I'm, like, thinking in my head, like, she's probably like, what is this mom doing on the bus? Like, no, she's, she's like, so nice. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but anyway, the funny thing is, is, we were talking, and she was telling me how how she had a crush on Jared. <laughs> no way. Yes, and my daughter is 25. I have taken my daughter. I've probably seen the main at least 25 or 28 times. No way. I started taking her to all their concerts, and then I started listening to their music. <laughs> They're good. That's how... That's how I found the first degree. No way. Well, I, yes, I love Jared. That, one of, Jared's one of my closest friends. I love him so much. If you say Laura and Erica, he, he'll know exactly from Ohio. He'll know exactly who you're talking about. Um, so this is so funny to me because I didn't know that I was going around telling people I had a crush on Jared back in the day. Like, I probably shouldn't have been doing that. <laughs> Kind of but nice I'm, for me to know this now. Are you, do you feel validated, Jared? Yeah, because according to Jack, anytime you ask Jack about us knowing each other like a long time ago, it's always, oh, yeah, you were the one who was like obsessed with me. <laughs> that yeah. was true. But then I was also like, yeah, but like when I liked you, I also liked three other guys and I was making out with probably five other guys at the same time. So you weren't that special. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, now <laughs> but you at were... least I have this golden proof. Yeah. <sighs> And you were going around telling strangers that you had a crush on Jared. I know. Like, why was I doing that? That probably wasn't the best thing to be doing. Because you were in love with Jared. I mean, in love is a stretch. But I, yeah, I mean, I can't believe I was doing that. That's so sweet that she remembered that. And And Jared, you remembered Laura and her daughter, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, it's like, I'm so I'm really bad with like names and faces Mm -hmm. usually. But if you've been to enough shows, I know who you are. And They've been around for so long. We go back so far with them that like, you know, it's like you 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 kind of have this bond, especially with people that were there in the beginning of your band, you know. So so um, very special place in our hearts for for Laura and also for Erica, her daughter. I was floored to hear she's been to almost 30 shows. 30? 30. Mm-hmm. She said 28, 29, 30. She's like somewhere around there for 100% because she started taking – her daughter to shows when she was 15 and she she's like i still have my jack vanick bracelets like i can't get rid of them i'm so attached to them <laughs> you know she's like diehard main fan along with her daughter and i was just like this is the best and it's great when the first degree concept really does come you know full circle where she had this close encounter with jack and jared as well several with jared um, but also the story that she's sharing with us, you know, bring attention to things like domestic violence, you know? So, and she also, it was really sweet just saying that she wants to use this experience, sharing her story on the first degree as sort of like 
the first step in moving past all of it. And she's like, I've been holding on to this stuff for 40 years. I've been bitter about it and I'm ready to start feeling differently and to make changes. And this is going to be my first step. This is, it was like very sweet to hear because that's, that is uh, the most we could ever hope for something. This is the most we could ever hope for, for our podcast. Like if someone tells their story and it has this cleansing therapeutic effect on them, I mean, that's the dream, right? So, you know, great conversation with Laura all around. And haven't you said that about like a few of the guests that maybe haven't really talked about their story before or haven't been able to share it, that it is this like cathartic whole experience for them being able to, and especially kind of move the needle in her case, move the needle forward when it comes to like domestic violence and stuff like that. Yeah. We've heard that several times over and it, a lot of people have expressed that they feel this sort of therapeutic aspect from from telling their story to, you know, a broad audience. And I think it really boils down to this idea of like being connected to a murder or to a crime or anything. I mean, it's painful. It's suffering. And I think finding meaning in it, you know, like I've said this quote several times, like Victor Frankl's quote in Man's Search for Meaning is like you find meaning in your suffering to get past it and mm-hmm. to uh, explain it and, you know, like philosophically come to terms with it. And I think a platform where you're educating people on your experience really does help you get there. So, you know, it was great to hear and we really, really enjoyed talking to Laura. We love talking to Laura and Jared loves her. Shout out to Laura. We love you, Laura. (laughs) (laughs) The best part of that too is, sorry, now we're, I'm going to switch gears back to like a happier conversation, but, um, the best part about that is she has probably been with them through like every, they have these things, their eras in each of their albums where there's a different color. There's like a whole different theme. And then you come to the show with your friends and you all dress up in outfits and stuff. And I'm sure she's done all those things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like I said, we're talking like a decade of of knowing somebody. Like, I mean, the the pictures that you sent me, Lex, that were like to like um, the pictures with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like looking at myself back then, it's so funny. It was like the awkward phase, and it's like yeah. that's how long. <laughs> That's how long we've known <laughs> some of these people. You You're know? definitely out of that phase now, for sure. Wow. He, I think he was fresh, freshly shaven. Yeah, that's rare. Right? That's rare, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You look great, Jared. Then and now. Well, well, what is it? What is everybody supposed to dress up it, uh, on the on the sticky tour, or is it is it called the sticky tour? Uh, we don't have a name for it yet. Uh, we're still figuring it out. There's not. So really everybody's like a, just supposed to bring bottles of maple syrup of honey and then throw it on them on on stage it's gonna be like a guar show but it'll be honey instead of blood Mm, (laughs) and blood would work out with the red they'll probably make their fans dress in like red and yellow that's the colors of the album right yeah i mean we'll see we're we're gonna get creative with it we're we're still trust me there's 10 10 meetings a day to figure this out right now (laughs) that's awesome they're like what shade of yellow should we wear should it be mm, fire engine red or (laughs) I'm into it. It's a whole thing. Um, Okay. Well, that was amazing because, I mean, I love... When you told us that, Alexis, I... Jared and I had a little moment. I was like, I did have a crush on you. I knew I was making a moment there. I was excited about it. (laughs) It was really sweet. So thank you. Thank you for that. Really needed that. Thank you. Yeah. Jared needed it. Okay. Well, while Jared's here, I'm going to... We're going to jump into like a question or two from the Facebook group, but I wanted Jared to stay here because one of the questions that somebody asked us was if 
any of us have ever had like a UFO or an alien or a ghost experience. And Jared and I actually had one together that he is going to tell you about. I'm ready for this. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so it was the first time Jack came out. This is after we were like technically dating. We're no. Like right before we started dating. No, 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 no. Jack still wouldn't commit to you? No, I wouldn't commit to uh, This was like two months after we started talking and Jared's like, come see me on Warp Tour. And I was like, maybe. So that was that. <laughs> she flew all the way to Florida to see me. I don't know what you would <laughs> <laughs> Jack's so trying to play it cool, but she flew to you, Florida. You bought me a ticket. It's I didn't irrelevant. buy my own. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. So we, I wanted to get a hotel so I could take a proper shower because we were on Warp Tour. So I booked a hotel and then after the day was over, we were like hanging out drinking at the like festival grounds and then like later that night we walked to a wawa Mm, to grab some food tasty sandwich such a move and then on the walk from the wawa to the hotel something ran across like the road and it was one it 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 wasn't a frog it wasn't uh it it was in the shape of a tiny tiny person like a foot tall but it had frog like skin and it was running across the road on two legs we both saw it that was very like slimy and alien like and was about 10 inches tall what if it was an alligator that's not what an alligator looks like at all alexis no no chance no chance (laughs) okay what if i think it's a lot more likely to be a 10 foot tall no, no, amphibian no, 10 or lizard, inch. ten inch tall amphibian or lizard than like a tiny mm. person. Its skin no. was its skin was sleek. It you was guys sh- saw the same thing? Yes. yes, it was shocking. We both we both at the same time were like, "What the fuck was that?" It was tiny. It was tiny. It almost looked like a human shape, but had like green glistening skin, <laughs> no scales, no amphibian face. It was like human a face. I didn't see the face because it was dark, but like it didn't have a like a, a snout of a alligator. No idea. So is no. this an alien so or is a it ghost? Like a, like a basilisk lizard? I don't know what that is. Do a search for basilisk lizard. Oh, I'll do it afterwards. Yeah, but n- this is an alien. <laughs> this is not a ghost because or, we bo- or do a search for an alien, but just type in all those keywords and see if anybody else saw it as well. Okay, in Florida, I'm going to go I for mean, a lizard. So, so wait, your so alien is it a ghost or an alien? <laughs> It's an alien. <laughs> Me and Alexis went to Wawa actually when we were in Florida. I love it. Wawa has the best sandwich ever. I mean, I don't know what we got there. We've been to so many roadside like, but Wawa, you, it I really think, stands out in I their mean, sandwich I mean, making. Well, it, for a gas station, they really throw down. I think right. it's better. It might be better than like a Jersey Mike's, in my opinion. Yeah. So we saw a miniature alien. What about you guys? Have you ever seen a UFO or had a ghost-like experience? Nope. Billy? Ne- never. Never? Never. I, I, I I, where I grew up was so scary that gr- believing in ghosts wasn't an option. Mm. Like, I grew up in a 200-something-year-old house in the woods, really isolated, big, old, abandoned basements and attics. And I couldn't believe in ghosts because I couldn't function. Allow yourself to. Yeah, because it was – and I was there alone all the time, and it was just like – there was you could not do that or you would you would die of fear so i just never believed in them or you would like welcome them into your heart exactly belly no ghosts at all no ghosts no you hear bumps in the night but then you know it's probably just a a, a lizard running on two feet 
I swear. Lizard. I wouldn't, you know what? I wouldn't have thought it was an alien if Jared didn't see the exact same thing as me. It was crazy. I'm not kidding, guys. It was nuts. It was. Well, <laughs> aliens are real. We just don't know if they look like what, how they're personified in, exactly. in movies and stuff. But there's no yeah. doubt that there's other life. But like that's, they're, they're like the grays. But this one was, it was green. There have been only a couple moments in my life where I've been speechless. That was definitely one of them. I had no idea what I was looking at. I'm jealous. I haven't even had like the feeling that someone, there's a ghost in there. Like I haven't even had an eerie sort of, ooh, a cold chill I can't explain. Like I've never had anything. Mm. Like Can I, I just live in the truth in science. It's boring. <laughs> <laughs> just live in the truth. Um, okay, next. Well, I'll do one more question because we have a couple minutes. Um, what is the weirdest thing that you guys have ever eaten? Have you ever eaten some crazy thing in a different country or just, you know, as crazy American food? Um, I've eaten all the weird stuff that like America has. Like I've eaten like alligator, mm-hmm. rattlesnake. We had an alligator together, I think, Alexis in New Orleans. Oh, yeah, in New Orleans. And then I had frog legs. I've had blood sausage in Europe, which is so gross. Ew. Yeah. Um, escargot. Nothing like crazy, crazy, but certainly like the more exotic meats that are kind of accepted. Mm. Billy? Yeah, seriously. I'm totally vanilla when it comes to this. Yeah, Billy doesn't even eat like... Oh, yeah, Billy doesn't even eat sushi. He doesn't even no, I, I, I'm, I'm warming up to sushi a little bit just in time for watching that documentary that says how much plastic I'm is not watching fish. that. But... <laughs> There's a credit card worth of plastic in these fish. I'm like, I'm not watching great. That. No, I finally got it's like into one sushi. of my. Lo- it's like one of my only like, true joys. And like Jack, I saw your back on the sugar fish train. Like no, go- like I'm not. Saw- I'm not. I decided tried against it. You- it wasn't. God damn it. Nope, wasn't for me. But, but I am on the sushi train, and it's one of the uh, the only things that does bring me happiness in life. Yeah. So I'm not watching that movie. <laughs> Under any circumstances, <laughs> we refuse. Um, mm-hmm. I've eaten a scorpion on a stick in Ooh. China. Scorpion's good. That was probably well, not. I don't know that, but sounds wait was like a it, lobster. What type of scorpion was it? Was it uh, like a big, like giant black scorpion, or was big it big ones? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Were they tasty? Um, the meaty kind. Mm, I was very drunk, so I don't remember really. That's I can't imagine it being that bad. I mean. Crunchy. Yeah, crunchy. Probably just tastes like a crunch. I've eaten one of those tequila worms at the bottom of the bottle. Mmm, the little the little glow worm. Don't remember what it tastes like. That's what I'm saying. But- that's what I'm saying. You're always yeah. you're always drunk when this is happening. But that's like, yeah, at the bottom of the tequila, it probably just tastes like tequila. That's right. An extra little surprise. <laughs> All right. Well, I feel like we've killed enough time. We have. We've killed 15 minutes and 23 seconds of time. Beep beep. I was shocked, you know? They were always such a good team, so successful. But to do something like that? To exceed their budget? While being over budget might not be a crime, it can disrupt workflows. With Monday.com, you and the team can be sure that you're all in sync. All the data, latest updates, files, and budgets are visible to everyone, so you won't miss a thing. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.